0: And If you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the New Old Testament book of Malachi. We are finishing up our last little segment inside of the Minor Prophets and our last message. We are going to take Malachi and just do a summary of it today in just one service. But we've been marching through all 12 of the Minor Prophets, helping give folks understanding. And we're thankful for the feedback, how people have been enjoying understanding more of the Minor Prophets and seeing how powerful these wonderful books are. And we now come to the very last message and the very last Minor Prophet inside of this series, the Book of Malachi. We find our way in the Book of Malachi, and we're going to start right in the middle of it, the Book of Malachi, chapter number 3. The book of Malachi, chapter number 3, and notice if you don't mind, in verse number 1. Malachi chapter 3 in verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says, Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant Whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Malachi chapter 3? The book of Malachi chapter 3, and notice with me in verse number 1, he shall prepare the way before me. He shall prepare the way before me. And with the Lord's help, we want to see and survey the book of Malachi here and understand what is trying to be accomplished in here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you now, we're just asking that you would open up this book of the Bible. Help us to have a good understanding. Help us to understand what is going on, the context, what's going on in the hearts and lives of the people of the audience And what is expected as a result of the preaching of the book of Malachi? Lord, again, I need you. We don't want to have a dry, formal service. We want to have a service where we're putting our attention upon you. And so I'm asking that you would put away any distractions, any hindrances, anything that would keep our attention and our minds and our hearts to be centered upon you. That you would help us to look at you, to see whom you are And that we would grow closer to you because of the preaching of your word. These are impossible things. I cannot make anyone listen. I can't make anyone have a desire to listen. But Lord, I could trust your Holy Spirit to do its work. To draw your people close to you even now. We're trusting your Spirit to do its own work and not me. So because of that, I surrender myself. I want myself out of the way because I dare not trust myself but I want you to have your perfect work done. Fill me with your precious spirit. Lord, please do something for eternity's sake. Please draw your people close to you. Do a work in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of Malachi chapter number 3, we could see that God is making a prediction of someone that is to come. And we'll talk more about them a little bit later. But notice the purpose of this. That he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of his covenant, whom ye delight in, because he shall come. Now, of course, we know that this is making a prophecy of Jesus Christ, and that it's talking about the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this forerunner was to make the way straight, to prepare the way to God. And as we see the book of Malachi, the whole purpose of the book of Malachi is to make the way straight, to prepare the way to follow after God. Now, what's going on in the context? Well, the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And not only is it the last book of the Old Testament, it is also uh, separated from the rest of the Old Testament to a little bit. At this time, Malachi is all by himself preaching. Zerubbabel has passed. Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest is gone. That we understand Haggai has passed away. Zechariah was martyred and killed. Ezra is gone. Nehemiah is gone. All that remains is Malachi. Now this is important because the people have been corrected by God from worshiping other gods. That was their original problem. They kept worshiping other gods other than the God of the Bible. Well, that's been fixed. How did God fix it? Well, he sent them to Babylon where they, served, where they had even more gods than the Hebrews served. And when they came back, they became the most monotheistic people there was. There's only one God. But now they have corrected, they're only serving one God. But now they had gotten used to serving one God and things become a little bit more dry, a little bit more formalized. At this time, the people were transitioning from the uh, the Torah, which is the Old Testament Scriptures, to the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Old Testament Scriptures. So even today, when you go to the Hebrew people, they're not using the Old Testament Scriptures. They're using a philosophy book, a commentary book, on the Old Testament for their teachings. And the people were already transitioning to this. They were already starting to write these commentaries. At this time the Sanhedrin has joined together. The Sanhedrin is the religious ruling council of the Hebrew people. They were put together originally by Ezra for the purpose of canonizing and formalizing the Old Testament scriptures. It was under Ezra and the Sanhedrin that they put the Psalms in the order that we find them in. They went through the Old Testament scriptures and they had to go pass a certain test to make sure and to authorize that this was written by God. Through the prophet. And so they went through all of the Old Testament books. This was written by God. This was written by God. And so now we have the Old Testament formalized as we see it. It's all written. It's all canonized. No lost books. Nothing. But it's official. Uh, Ezra led this council. Now as Ezra's passed, this council has now become more the religious group. Look at how great we are. We are more spiritual than you are. And it's starting to rub off on the people. And now the people are getting cold in their religion. Sure, we serve God, but we serve God our way. They show up to church service and do like some of you. Okay. And they get to the place where it's no longer exciting to follow after God. They get to the place where we know when to stand up. We know when to sit down. We know when to hold our Bible We know when to sing. They get to the place where they're singing and they're saying words, but their mind and their heart are so far away. They're at the place where they know what they're supposed to do as Christians, but there's no life to it. There's no enthusiasm. There's no encouragement. It is a religious function that I have to do. I have to go to church. I'll got that off. I checked it off for the day. I've done my religious service. God must be happy with me. I will go do whatever I want to do now. You see, that's the tendency of all people. That when you come to know Christ as your Savior, everything's exciting at the beginning. Because God has changed your life. Then you get used to being saved. And you start to allow disobedience. You start to allow things to kind of cool off. Your prayer life is... All right, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, now I lay me down to sleep. And if you do pray, it's little ritual prayers. You're not talking to anybody, but you're praying. You read your Bible because it's out of duty, all right, checked off. You read it academically, but you're no longer close to the Lord. And this is the state of the people. They're serving one God, but it's cold, empty, lifeless. And so as the book of Malachi is written, it's written for the purpose of making the way straight, preparing the path for the Lord, making it easy so people can get to God by pointing out that there's some things, some obstacles that are now in their lives that are keeping them from going close to God. And with this, we're going to see seven declarative statements that we could find. describe in the book of Malachi. And what we're going to find is that the people are going to bring up objections. You're going to see this phrase that is repeated, wherein thou hast said. So basically we're going to see that the prophet's going to say, this is what's wrong. And the people are going to object with the teenager. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. That's not true. nuh and they have the idea that they 're not believing what the preacher is saying about their life, and they want to argue and say that God is wrong and they 're right, and they can do things the way that they want, and they don 't have to change again, the whole purpose of Malachi is to help make the way straight so people can get to the lord it 's not putting obstacles it 's trying to remove obstacles out of people 's life that have naturally come because they 've starting to get further away from God they become cold, they become formal. And there's no fire left. So with that, let's examine these statements that we could find in the book of Malachi that are attempt to be removed so that way they can make the way straight. So that way they can prepare the way for the people to get to God with no obstacles. The first thing that we see is that toward their sovereign maker they've adopted a contradictory attitude. Towards their sovereign maker they've adopted a contradictory attitude. With that, turn with me as we survey this book of Malachi to Malachi chapter number one. The book of Malachi chapter number one, and right at the beginning, this is dealt with. Whenever you see that, <laughs> this phrase, um, whereas thou hast said, or yet ye say, I want you to put in your mind that teenager phrase that you're so used to from your own teenagers around your life. Nuh uh. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the verse uh, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. Malachi 1.1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Stop there. That's a great statement. God has loved you. Without a doubt, he has loved you. But notice the next phrase. Yet you say, nuh-uh, Wherein hast thou loved us? Can you imagine what a contradiction that is? God loves you. Nah, how does he love us? You know, as we go through here, it's almost like I've had conversations like this with other people before. Do you know that God loves you? Nah, he is not, he doesn't care about me. Nah, God doesn't love me. Nah. That's exactly what these people said. Yet ye have said, wherein hast thou loved us? Let me tell you that God is love. And God commendeth his love or proved his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning when we were no good scumbags, Jesus willingly died on the cross because he loved you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Do you know that God loves you so much that if you're the only person on this earth, Christ still would have died on the cross for you. But that's not all. He didn't say I loved you on the cross period. He continues to love you. By giving you good gifts. By giving you blessings. By providing his word. By giving you so many things. In fact the Bible talks about the book of Hebrews. Because he loves you. That when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Because he loves you as a good father. He also disciplines you. You know the Bible talks about in the book of Uh, Proverbs, that if you um, don't, (laughs) don't discipline your child, you don't love your child. The Bible repeats that in the book of Hebrews. Because he loves you, he will correct your behavior. That is an act of love. So he loved by dying on the cross. He loved because he disciplines him. He loves you by providing his spirit where you could trust him. He loves you because he's given you his word. He loves you because he's given you the medium of prayer to talk with him. He loves you because he wants to spend time with you. You could go throughout the Bible and find all of these things where it talks about how much God loved you and the act he did to prove his love towards you. And yet the people say, Nuh-uh. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. What they've done is towards their sovereign maker, they have a contradictory attitude. nuh Notice it goes on, verse 6, still with this contradictory attitude. Notice verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be the master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts, unto you, O priest, that despise my name? And ye say, no uh wherein have we despised thy name? So God says, listen, I'm a father to you. And a father should have the respect and the obedience and the honor of a son of a child. If I'm a master, then there should be a fear. In this case, the idea of fear carries the idea of a respect that causes me to obey. So let's imagine, (coughs) I don't know what kind of household you grew up in, but if my dad told me to do something and I went, nuh-uh, I would wake up several years later. Because there should be a respect. I should not even dream about saying, nah uh to my father when he's asked me to do something to honor him. Go to your boss. Your boss says, I want you to do your job today. Nah, I'm good. Well, does that work out? Well, God says, I'm more than a boss. I'm more than just an earthly father. I'm a heavenly father. And I love you. And I want the best for you. But where's my honor? Now, remember the context. Here are people that are professing to be believers. Professing to follow after God. But their heart is cold towards God. Ah, God's just God. I don't have to honor him. No, not a big deal. I don't have to do this. Notice as God gets specific, he says, "O priest that despise my name. And you say, nah, where have we despised thy name? No, notice this. God ties in this idea that he's not getting honor and he's not getting respect from them because they have despised his name. And they go, nah, uh where have we despised your name? We haven't done that. Well, understand this, that when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are now called a Christian, a Christ follower. You now carry his name. You remember when you were a kid and were in public school and, and went to a field trip? And the field trip, before they gather you together, say, Listen, we're going to this museum. You represent our school. There are a certain way we expect you to behave behave because you're, you're representing our school. Or your family. And your family, <laughs> let's just use mine, you're a Bach house. This is how a Bach house behaves. We don't behave like this. You carry my name. You are a representation of me. Well, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, and you call yourself a Christian, you are now representing Christ. And if you don't behave correctly, you're bringing a bad name to Jesus Christ. You're his representation. The idea of a priest here carries the idea of a representation of Christ. Well, in the New Testament, we have the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers, meaning that Everyone has access to God. Everyone can talk to God. For example, as a pastor, some people imagine that because I'm a pastor, I have a secret way to talk to God. That maybe in my desk, there's a secret red bat phone underneath a glass cover and I could pick it up and, hey God, I need something. Or maybe when I get saved or become a preacher, that I get a special card that preachers get and it's 1-800-PLEASE-PRAY and I get a direct line to God. But you understand you have as much access to God as I do. You can go to God for yourself. Therefore, you also have the responsibility to represent God to other people. That's called the priesthood of every believer. You are to represent who Christ is to others. And when we don't behave the way that we ought to, we bring a bad name to Christ. How many people that we know that say, I don't go to church because some Christian behaved this way? I don't like to follow after Christianity because some church person did this. We are representations of Jesus Christ. And people will follow, get closer to God, or get further away from God because of our behavior. And because of the behavior of the people at this time, people are despised. Oh, if that's how people who follow God behave, I don't want nothing of it. Because they had the idea that they're better than everyone else. They had the idea that I'm more spiritual. You could never obtain my spirituality. You know what? I know that I may not have things right in my life, but you're you're nothing. Well, they're despising the name of God who loves everyone. And because of the way that they live their life, it's causing people to question who God is. To not want to be close to God. And God says, you've despised my name. And their answer is, nuh uh Wherein as we despise thy name. It goes on. They're still contradicting their master. Notice with me verse 11. And from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen. saith the Lord. Of hosts, Now, God is saying, there's Gentiles who are going to come to know Christ as their Savior, and they're going to carry my name, and my name's going to be great among those who are non-Jewish people. Verse 12, but ye, the Jewish people, the people of Malachi's day, have profaned it. Profaned what? God's name. In that you said, the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even the meat, is contemptible. Do you know that here we could violate one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is. Thou shalt not uh, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The word vain means to make empty. Now most people apply that. That you are not supposed to use God's word as a curse word. And by the way you are not. God's last word if you could not forgive me. Doesn't start with the word D. You understand that how we use God's name is important. You should never say, oh my, and then fill in God's name if you're not talking to him. What is the violation of the second commandment or this commandment dealing with the idea not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? It's to make light or empty of God's name. So you could summarize it like this. It's whenever God's name is on your lips, but it's not currently burning in your heart. Do you know that most Christians violate this May I even say that you have broken God's commandment today in this church? Wherein has we done that? Well, when we got through singing songs. And as you're singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. air of salvation. And when you're singing that song, you're thinking, I'm hungry. I want what we're eating for lunch today. Is this service going to be long? I wonder what's on TV. Anytime that you say God's name on your lips... But it's not currently burning in your hearts. You have violated this commandment. You've broken the Ten Commandments. And most people, because their heart is no longer paid attention to the Lord, violate the commandment every church service. Because we're no longer close to God. We're far away. Do you know that you could go to church and be backslidden? You could read your Bible and be backslidden. You could sing songs and be backslidden. If you're not thinking about Christ when you're singing, it is evidence. And you violated this. And the people say, nah, I show up and sing. What more do you want? God wants your heart. He wants you to be thinking about him. That is the whole purpose of singing these songs is to worship him. To think about him. And what we're seeing is this cold nature of these folks. And by the way, the reason why they're saying nah uh is because they do not want to accept the rebuke that they are not right. Nuh-uh, I'm right if I want to be. Remember, the whole purpose of this is to make the way straight. To get rid of the obstacles so people can get directly to God. What is one of these obstacles? This contradictory attitude. They want to think that they're right And when the preacher is now telling them they're wrong, -uh. nuh-uh, nuh-uh. You're going to be annoyed with that, nuh-uh. You think God's annoyed with that, -uh. nuh-uh, whenever we try to bring objections? That's point one. Let's see what else about these people. Notice this. Towards their salvation message, they adopted a contemptuous attitude. Towards their salvation message, they adopted a contemptuous attitude attitude. That means the idea full of contempt. Notice with me in verse 7. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 7. Ye have offered polluted bread upon my altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? Nuh-uh. In that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. Notice this. They had no respect for the offering. Now remember, we're talking about the Old Testament economy. And in the Old Testament economy, they were supposed to give their best for the Lord for the sacrifice. Instead, they're giving their worst. They're giving their leftovers. And remember, the sacrifice was supposed to be a representation of Jesus Christ. That they were supposed to offer a perfect lamb without spot and blemish. They were to offer a perfect ram. They were supposed to offer something that wasn't sick. So here it gives the idea that you haven't given your best. Well, you know what? You give your best to other people. Think about going to the governor. Now, at that time, when you would give taxes, you wouldn't necessarily give in money. Sometimes you would give of livestock. So can you imagine that you're paying taxes and to pay taxes it required that you were supposed to give a lamb. And so you go in your flock and go, hmm, which should I give to the governor? Well, this lamb is blind and its legs are all stumpy and it walks kind of funny, and I don't really like this lamb. You know what? I'm gonna give this as my taxes. So you present it to the governor. Here you go, governor. This is what I think of you. Do you think that's gonna go well? Absolutely not. So what were they expected to give? Well, something without spot and blemish, something that would work, something that wasn't their leftovers. Well, you know what we do towards Christ? We get used to being saved we give God our leftovers. May I give an example? Well, the preacher says I'm supposed to read my Bible. I suppose I'll start doing it. I'll do it at the end of work, you know, after everything's over there. Okay, I'll read my Bible, get half a verse in. Well, did you give your best to the Lord? Did you give your best, freshest mind? Or you just said, well, you know, whatever time I have left over, I'll give to him. God doesn't want your leftovers and He doesn't deserve your leftovers. Yet that's what we give to Christians. Let me give another example. Someone's been tasked, they've been have the, the opportunity to clean the church for the Lord. Well, I don't really feel like doing it today. I'll just do a kind of spot job. I don't care. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our best. The Bible talks about in the book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 1, that we're supposed to give our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto him. That means not our leftovers. But yet people do this all the time. I have lots of stuff to do. I got my real life to worry about. And if I got time, I'll serve God. If I get time, I'll give to the Lord. If I get time, whatever. We try to give God our leftovers and we have things backwards. And God says, listen, am I not God? But they have a contemptuous. They look at God with contempt. He is not worthy of my best. He, I'll give him leftovers if I have any. That's what I think about God. He is not worthy of my best. Now again, what is the purpose of the book of Malachi? To get rid of obstacles, to make the way straight, to make the path plain for people to get to the Lord. And to make people realize here that, listen, you're not giving your best to the Lord. You're giving him his leftovers, but this is God that we're talking about. Stop giving God your junk. It's amazing how many times people have what is called a missions um, offering where they can go ahead and give uh, some things for a missionary. When they come in, they have a missionary's closet. And how many things they say, Oh, you know what? We have a pantry for missionaries. Well, I got these dentic cans. Let's give those to the missionaries. And hey, you know what? I have an old suit that has holes all over it. Let's give that to the missionary. And what they do is they give their leftovers and they give their junk to the church. They give their junk to the Lord. They give their junk for the cause of the Lord. And they want God to be happy with their leftovers. And God is not. And what this is is evidence that their heart is really far away. All this is is pointing out over and over the one problem. Their heart is far away from God. It's not close at all, and here is evidence. And my job is to make the way straight to get you close to God, remove the obstacles, point them out the things that need to be moved. So we understand we start off that towards their sovereign maker they've had a contradictory attitude. That towards the salvation message they adopted a contemptuous attitude. We also see towards their separated ministers they adopted a corrupting attitude. Towards their separated ministers they adopted a corrupting attitude. Notice with me in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Notice with me in verse 1. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, even, or I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Notice this. If you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name. That means on purpose say I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to honor God. Then guess what? I'm going to put a curse upon you. And you've already got a curse because you haven't been. Notice this goes on verse 3. Behold I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. Even the dung of your solemn feces and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you. That my covenant might be with Levi saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did many turn away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they shall seek the law at his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But... Ye are departed from the way, and have caused many to stumble at the law, and ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Now what's it speaking about? Well, God had designed the Levites to be the teachers of the law. Now some of the Levites would become priests whose job was specifically to take care of the temple of God. But the rest of the Levites, their job was to teach the word of God to the people. And yet what the people have done is they've taken the Levites and say, you know what, you don't have to teach the Bible. Why don't you teach something else? And they've tried to get their ministers to teach a message that's contrary with the word of God. Verse 8 again but ye are departed out of the way. Which way? The way that God wants them to go. And ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi saith the Lord of hosts. Now the Bible talks about this in the book of 2 Timothy. It says that in 2 Timothy that the preachers is supposed to preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering doctrine. For the time Shall come when people shall keep to themselves teachers having itching ears. What does that mean? Well, that means people don't want preachers to preach the Bible. They want to preach them a positive message. You know, I don't preach so negative all the time. I don't preach on sin. That actually squelches people's self-esteem. You want people to feel good about themselves. You don't want to teach people about that they're sinners. You want them to look into themselves fondly. We understand in order for you to be right with God, we have to preach on sin. An old preacher of yesteryear, John R. Rice, showed up at a church and he reared back and he preached on everything. He says, God hates liquor and God hates this. And he started naming sins. Well, that night after everyone left, the preacher came to him and said, Sir, John R. Rice, we appreciate you coming. But a lot of the people said they're not coming back. They, they said they don't want you to hear Preach on sin. They want a more positive message. Can you manage that? John R. Rice says, Come on. Come, tell him to come back and I'll preach a positive message tomorrow. And so he, the preacher went and gathered up everyone and said, Listen, he's going to preach a positive message tonight. You go ahead and come. It'll be alright. So John R. Rice went back and said, Listen here. I am positive God hates liquor. And I am positive God hates this sin. And I am positive. But you know what? they want? It. They don't want to preach on sin because they don't want to turn from their ways. They want someone to pat them on the head and say they're there. God loves you as you are. You live however you want and God accepts you. That is not a true statement. Now God does love everyone and he's willing to take anyone. But you understand we cannot live however we want and God accept the way that we live. What is the purpose of this? To make the way straight. To make the path clear. For people to get to God. And yet what people are doing is they are putting an obstacle in their way. By having a preacher that preaches the message they want. Rather than what the word of the Lord says. So we can see towards their separated ministers. They adopted a corrupting attitude. It goes on. Towards the sanctity of marriage. They adopted a callous attitude attitude. Towards the sanctity of marriage, they adopted a callous attitude. Notice as we continue on in the book of Malachi chapter 2. The book of Malachi chapter 2, notice with me in verse 14. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. Yet ye say, now here's that phrase, -uh," wherefore, because the Lord hath been a witness between thee and and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet... Is she thy companion, the wife of thy covenant? Did not he make one? Yet he hath the residue of the spirit. Wherefore one, and he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now here it's talking about the sanctity of marriage. And it's talking about that when a husband and wife get married, that the covenant is not between two people. People have a mistake that I made a promise to her and she made a promise to me. A marriage is actually between three people. Two people making a promise to God about each other. You understand marriage is a serious thing because you've made a promise to God that you are going to honor And keep and cherish and protect her good times and bad times. And she's made the promise to God about you. And this idea here about marriage. Now at this time divorce is starting to become a trickle. By the time of Jesus' day in the Romans period, in the Roman Empire, divorce now becomes a flood and becomes commonplace. You understand? that even today, the idea of the sanctity of marriage, that the idea of the home and the importance of the home has been eroded and destroyed. And now people are saying, well, it's a trial basis. I will go ahead and love her until the feeling stops. And then I do whatever I want. Hollywood teaches a false type of love. How many movies do they have where some couples in a wrong relationship, and then she finds the hairdresser, she finds some other guy, and that she falls in love with him. And the whole movie is cheering when she finally leaves the person she's with and goes to the other person to live happily ever after. That they've changed everything. That when we talk about I love someone, it's not a feeling. It is a commitment that I make to God concerning someone else. And yet they've destroyed it. People have been bragging, look, the marriage divorce rates have gone down in recent times. You want to know why they've gone down? Because people don't even see the importance of marriage so they don't marry anymore. And the sanctity of the home is being destroyed. And the definition of the home is being. Do you know in England you can marry your dog? Do you know in England you can marry yourself? It's been done. And very soon it's going to get to the place where three men can marry two women. And you have a family unit of five. Once this definition has been eroded, everything else is gone. Now we understand that the building block of every society is the home. And as the home erodes, so does the society. You say, is that your opinion? It is not. You can look for yourself. How many people they've studied that have a home where there's no father present, and what happens to the kids? Those statistics are available for you to look at for yourself. This is not an opinion. It is a study to establish the thing. Now, by the way, I respect every single parent who did their best and served and, and worked. That is a hard position, and they need encouraged encourage the best they can. But what we're saying here is that there was something that God designed, and it fell apart. And it's causing a problem. And God says, listen, you made a commitment. This is a serious thing. And that you need to honor this commitment. And yet they have a callous attitude. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal at all. Notice as it goes on in that same context in verse number 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, where have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth good in the sight of the Lord, he delighteth in them. Or, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delighteth in them. Or, weary is the God of judgment. Here it says, ye have wearied the words. What is happening in the context, and the people are saying, we can do whatever we want. We don't care if it's against God's word or not. God likes us just the same. It's acceptable. I don't have to believe what the Bible says. And God still thinks I'm good. That is not true. God is very clear on his standards of living. Now you say, well, this isn't a popular message. It wasn't popular in Malachi's time either. Because they were going, uh uh. I want to live however I want. I don't want some preacher to tell me. Well remember the purpose here is not just to preach. It's to get you to get closer to God. And removing obstacles. And pointing out that there's some things that are missing and wrong. And people are having their objections. Trying to say that the Bible is wrong. Trying to say that God is wrong. And as long as you're trying to say the Bible is wrong. And that God is wrong. And defend your position. You're not going to get closer to God. And thus we have the problem. The people don't want to get closer to God. It goes on. Towards the sinful majority, they adopt a complacent attitude. Towards the sinful majority, they adopted a complacent attitude. Malachi chapter 3, notice with me verse 5. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5. And I will come near you to judgment. And I will be swift witness against the sorcerers. And against the adulterers. And against the false swears. And against those that oppress the hireling in his wages. The widow, the fatherless. That turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me. saith the Lord of hosts. Here we could see here. That there is a sinful majority and the people have come to the place where they've accepted the sinful majority. You know, we know that our morality of our country has changed what they view to be right or wrong. And because of the morality of our country changed, the laws changed to reflect that. And that things that were considered wrong in society 30, 40, 50 years ago are considered correct today. Well, God's standard never changes, but what happens is that people get used to sin. They're no longer embarrassed with sin. May we say that we're exposed to sin all the time, that it no longer bothers us. We no longer bat an eye. There's no big deal anymore. We've become complacent. We've gotten so used to sin around us. And when you get used to it, you start to accept it. It becomes commonplace. It becomes acceptable in society and therefore no longer a big deal and therefore it will no longer be considered wrong. Let me tell you, God's standards never change. What was wrong in the Old Testament is still wrong in the New Testament. God doesn't change his mind on standards of holiness. Now again, not a popular message. People don't like that. But what is the purpose of here? Not to beat up people and to preach on it. It's to remove all obstacles to make the way straight so they can get close to the Lord. And this is a problem that people are complacent about sin. They have no problems with preachers preaching on other people's sin, but don't touch my sin. People like sin. That's why we sin. And they get used to it. And then they say, preacher, why is it a big deal? Why are you making it a big deal? Don't you know everyone does this? Everyone accepts this. It's no longer a big deal. May I give you an example? In America, we live in a society full of liars. So much that lying is acceptable. And may I say that lying is expected in our society? Even if it's a small lie, an exaggeration. There's an expectation. You know, you actually have people that teach that you are supposed to lie to your spouse. You are supposed to lie to your kids. You are supposed to. I'll give you an example. Easter bunny. Is the Easter bunny real? But kids teach them that it's real. And so now you've lied to your child. And What happens when your child realizes that you're lying to him the whole time? What else is he lying about? Does this dress make me look fat? You're you're expected to lie. You understand we live in a place where exaggerations and little small lies are accepted and expected and then the bigger lies come. Cheat on your taxes? That's lying. Make a little fudge on your paperwork? Not being honest on your resume? Exaggerating on this? It's expected in our society. And so thus it's tolerated it and accepted. But it is always wrong. Do you think it's cute? Do you think God says, oh, they're teaching about the Easter bunny. I know it's not true, but isn't that cute? Do you think God thinks it's cute? Not at all. I'll get hate mail on that later on, but I'm teaching you the truth. We live in a country of liars where it's expected to. And thus we teach our kids not to expect the truth from us. Because we lie to them about this. What else will we lie to them about? We teach them from a young age that we're supposed to lie to them. That's just one example. There is a whole lot more. As we go on, towards their secular materialism, they've adopted a carnal attitude. Sorry, I was alliterating through the whole thing. It works. Towards their secular materialism, they adopted a carnal attitude. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have said, no, I'm not robbing God. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Well, let me define terms. What is a tithe? A tithe literally means 10%. And so, according to the Bible and our rules of following after him, and the idea of holiness and standards, not for salvation, but for the idea of worshiping the God that has saved us in response to him, That if I make a hundred dollars, then 10% of it is the Lord's. 10% is $10. That $10 is already the Lord's. I don't give the tithe, I bring the tithe. Now God says, you have robbed me. The word rob is a very special word. It is different from stealing. Stealing has the idea of doing it subtly and sneakily so no one sees me. The idea of robbing is blatantly in front of them. Taking it while they are looking. God says, ye have robbed me. The tithe was mine. It is mine. You've taken what does not belong to you. Now at the same time, God says you could live better off the 90% than what you can with 100%. Because you have God's blessing. Notice as it goes on, verse 10. But ye have uh, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there not be room enough to receive it. You know what God says here? I double dog dare you. Put me to the test. Prove me to see if I'm wrong. Tithe, you give 10% with the right motive. You give to me and see if you are not better off. Now we're not talking about finances. We're not talking about the idea that if you give $10, God's going to give you $100. It's not what we're talking about. But you know what? God can let your health be better. He could extend your cars, your tires. He could keep bills from coming. He could take care of you. Think about the children of Israel. They didn't have Walmarts, but God made it so for 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. As a parent of teenagers, that would be a blessing. Their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. How many of your clothes are 40 years old that you wear all the time? They wear out. You know, God can make gas last longer in your car. He can make your tires last longer. And in fact, if you doubt it, there are many people in here who have proven tithing for themselves and they can give you testimonies. In fact, my father-in-law has been a pastor of a church for 45 years and he has a lady in town who hates him. Every chance she gets, she talks bad about him and the church and whatever else. But every month she sends her tithe. And people say, that doesn't make sense. I thought you hate the guy. I thought you hate the church. Yeah, but every time I tithe, God blesses me. Now she's got things to get fixed, but you understand God promised to honor the tithe. He said, I double dog dare you, prove me. In fact, my pastor used to give this money back guarantee. If you tithe for a year and God doesn't bless and honor that tithe, I'll give you your money back. You know why he can give a blank chink like that? bank blank check like that because God promised and God can't lie. God says, if you want to prove that I'm real and everything that I said is true, start with the tithe, something substantial. You go ahead and give 10% and double dog dare you see if I will not bless that tithe. By the way, if you're not a faithful tither by conviction, I double dog dare you to put God to the test and prove that he is real. You double dog dare you. God promised it. But notice this. Wherein is we robbed you? We don't have to give tithe. We don't have to worship you with our finances. We're fine. We're good just by ourselves. Again, what am I doing? I don't need your money. And God doesn't need your money. But you need his blessing. We're trying to remove obstacles so you can get close to God. And we're pointing out obstacles, according to the book of Malachi, that are in people's life that are keeping them from being close to God. Which was the whole problem. The people have gone cold and callous. They have the polar bear Baptist church. They have the icicle Baptist church. They show up and it's cold, lifeless, ritualistic. Oh, victory in Jesus. Okay, sit down. Listen, try to stay awake for the message. Oh, that's over with. I endured another service. Let's get out of here. God doesn't want church to be like that. He doesn't want serving him to be like that. He wants it to be something God met with me and it's real. Then why aren't people more like that? Because there's obstacles in their path that keep them from going to God. And part of it is their own attitude. -uh, Nuh-uh, nuh-uh. I don't care what God says. I'll do it my own way. And they wonder why they're not close to the Lord. Notice if you don't mind, one other thing. Towards their sacred manuscripts, they adopted a careless attitude. Towards their sacred manuscripts, they adopted a careless attitude. Attitude. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, starting at verse number 4. Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with statutes and judgments. Now we know that this is going to be the Old Testament law from the book of Exodus all the way up to the book of Deuteronomy. And it's also implying the whole scriptures as a whole. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest, so unless, I come and smite the earth with a curse. You see, the Bible began with creation and the Old Testament ends with a curse. Why? Because they're ignoring the Bible. I could do things my own way. I'm smarter than God. I have things better figured out. I know God says I'm supposed to do things like this. But I could do it like this and still get by with it. They became careless towards the scriptures. And so God says, I'm going to send a curse. The only hope is a messenger to come and make the way straight. So you can get close to the Lord. By the way, now let me give you the good news. All of this has been directed... You say, well, this isn't encouraging. Here's the encouraging God sent a man, sent from God by the name of John. And John the Baptist's job was to make the way straight. Straight for who? Jesus who is the son of God who came and the purpose was to make the way straight so the preacher's job was to make things easy so they could get to God get rid of any obstacles to get rid of any objections to get rid of anything that would keep someone from being close to God why because God wants you to be close to him God doesn't want to be a God who's afar off he wants you to be close to him the problem is, is that there's so much things in our way that keeps us from going to closer to God. We have our obstacles. We have our barriers. We have the strongholds we built ourselves. We're trying to knock those out of the way so that way you can be close to God. Remember, the whole purpose of holiness, which we've talked about this morning in Sunday school, the whole purpose of holiness is so that way we don't change God into our image. Instead, we're changed into God's image. God wants us to come to him. He doesn't come to us. Yet, we expect him to come to us. We expect him to come and meet us the way that we want to. God, you accept whatever I do. But yet, God is with his arms open and says, I want you to be close to me. I want you to be close to me. Come to me. And so we remove all obstacles. We remove all barriers because there's a God who wants you to be close to him. See, that's the whole purpose. The whole purpose of this is not to make you a better religious person. We're not trying to give you better rituals to perform. We're not trying to get you more exciting rituals. We're trying to make it so you can get to know personally and have an intimate, close relationship with a God who loves you. You understand that's the purpose of this message. Not to tell you the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. We're not trying to tell you what you should and should not do. We're trying to say get rid of any barrier that would keep you from being close to God. And there are real barriers. There are some people who will never get close to God. Because they have barriers that they refuse to get over. Barriers they refuse to move. And yet God has open arms said, I'll take you. Come to me. I want you to be to me. I want you to be close to me. What we understand from this principle is you are as close to God as you want to be. And anytime you want to be closer, you can. But it is up to you. It's almost like the couple driving down the road in the old pickup truck. The man's driving, has his arm on the seat. The wife's on the other side of the pickup truck. And she looks at him and says, you remember the days when we were young and in love and we would drive down the road and we, you would have your arm close to me. Well, he looks at her at the other side of the truck and says, I didn't move. She's the one on the other side. She could move closer if she wanted to. Well, you know, God didn't move at all. It was us. We moved further away from him. We moved away. All that we're trying to say is we're removing barriers so you can be close to him. He wants you to be intimate with him. There is a real, passionate, fervent, heated relationship you can have with the Lord. He wants your Christian life to be exciting, not boring. He wants your Christian life to be fulfilled, not empty. He wants it to be full of life, not cold and dispassionate. You, right now, where you're at, Are as close to the Lord as you want to be. And if you want to be closer, remove whatever barriers keeping you back and run to the Lord who loves you.